I invite you this morning to come with me to Peter's first epistle, 1 Peter, the fourth chapter. 1 Peter, chapter 4. Begin reading at verse 7 and read through verse 11. 1 Peter 4, verses 7 through 11. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. As good stewards of God's varied grace, whoever speaks is one who speaks the oracles of God, whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of our God. Let's pray. Our Father, our request now, our longing is that this, your word, come to us in might and in power, that we be changed by it. May we not treat this lightly as the words of mere men, but with the weight, the gravitas that it carries. This is God speaking. Oh, Lord, help us now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Bag packed, personal items, some clothing. Another bag for myself, similar items. Another bag with snacks. A book on navigating childbirth. A tennis ball or two, usually in a sock, right? A back massager, a camera. All the stuff you needed. Because it's getting close to time for the baby, right? And you don't want to have to wake up in the middle of the night and think. I don't do well waking up in the middle of the night and immediately thinking. At least not in any coherent sort of way. I can get up and meander about like a chicken with its head cut off, or I can lie there and think very profound thoughts in between snoozes. But doing those two things at the same time rarely works well. We make preparations. A certain event with an uncertain timing. For Simon Peter, for the early church, and for us, there's a certain event, the return of Christ, with an uncertain timing. How shall we respond to that? Now, bear in mind, unbelievers have no such thought nor preparation. John Updike, in his novel Pigeon Feathers, showed his naturalistic worldview in one particular passage. 
Without warning, David was visited by an exact vision of death, a long hole in the ground, no wider than your body, down which you were drawn while the white faces recede. You try to reach them, but your arms are pinned. Shovels pour dirt in your face. There you'll be forever in an upright position, blind and silent, and in time no one will remember you and you'll never be called. As the rocks shift, your fingers elongate and your teeth distend sideways in a great underground grimace indistinguishable from a strip of chalk. And the earth tumbles on. And the earth, excuse me, the sun expires. And an unaltering darkness reigns where once there were stars. That's dark. And yet that is the naturalistic assumption, is it not? Of course, Simon Peter here opens with the affirmation, the end of all things is at hand. And there's been enough influence of Christianity and even other groups within our own society, something of a doomsday scenario even among those who are pagan, that the idea of the end of all things is at hand has become kind of a, a byword, a funny thing. You know, the, the fellow in either sandals or barefoot with robes and shaggy hair, and he's got a sign. The end is near, and it's something to be laughed at. But for the Christians to whom Peter's writing, this isn't funny. We call this theme of these messages, faithful living in fearful times. They're struggling with fearful times. The prospect of death and suffering is right around the corner. They were facing persecution. Further, the order of all things they had known was about to change. The finality of the covenant curses on Israel are just a few years away. It was dark enough, it was bad enough that Israel had rejected the word of the prophets in the Old Testament. It was hard enough that they had embraced idolatries, that they had forsaken the God who had rescued them. But that was slight in comparison to the final sin. To not only reject, but to execute the promised Messiah, calling down a curse on themselves May his blood be on us and on our children. The end was right in front of them. We lose sight of the certainty of Christ's coming, and it doesn't have the impact on us it should. I would say we even lose sight of the lesser comings of Christ, if you will. There are times the Lord comes and He comes in judgment. Cultures, governments, nations have all suffered, if you will, the coming of the Lord. 
They thought themselves to last forever. They thought themselves invincible. And he who sits in the heavens laughs at all the might of all the nations together. But there is one final coming. Peter is reminding us that when eternity is at the front door, you best get your house in order. When eternity is that close, what should you be doing? Now, if you doubt this, or doubt that's really his point, notice how verse 7 opens. The end of all things is at hand, therefore. So, Simon Peter has given you his thesis. The end is near. Therefore. All he's doing is echoing what Jesus said. Matthew 25, watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Simon Peter holds not only to the reign of Christ, but also his return. And as far as he understood, the end had already begun. And my friends, please never lose sight of that. The last days began the moment Christ was raised from the dead and ascended into heaven. Everything from that point forward is last days. It's the end. It was taken 2,000 years. Yes. Bless God. In mercy, it has. How are we to live? If the end is near, if eternity is at the door, first consideration, you ought to be adjusting your inner life, your personal life. So what does he say? The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, here's the beginning, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Self-control, there's a matter of how you behave. Now, let's acknowledge something. Self-control is the last thing anybody in this culture wants to hear about. With the rise and triumph of the modern self, nobody is into the matter of self-control. Everybody's into the matter of self-fulfillment, self-aggrandizement, self-exalted, and everybody better get on board with my project. And my project is me. You do realize what you witness now is the inevitable unraveling of anything that could be called culture and society. If we're all going to have our own self-building project without any reference to anybody else, without any reference to God, without any reference to ethics, without any reference to reality, Western civilization is already dead. self-control. Christian, that is the essence, is it not, of godly living. That's a beginning point, self-control. Because I realize some things about myself. Me out of control isn't good for anybody. And that control starts inwardly. It's a matter of the discipline of the inner life. Now, 
The next part isn't just about self-control, it's about clarity of thinking. I love the way Peter puts this, be sober-minded. You could say clear-headed. And I think he says it in light of the coming of the Lord because our tendency is to be anything other than sober-minded, clear-thinking upon this. Some will take this, absolutely, self-control, sober-minded. Look, I've got my prophecy charts I know who is this person, and here's the beast, and here's the Antichrist, and here's what's happening in the Middle East, and here's what's happening in Europe, and Asia, and in America, and I've got it all figured out. I am an eschatological Einstein. That is not the calling Peter is giving here. Let me clarify something for you real quick. There are no eschatological line signs. There are the people of God looking for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Full stop. We wait that coming. Clarity of thinking. Self-control. Matthew Henry put it this way, when the appetites and inclinations of the body are restrained and governed by God's word and true reason, and the interests of the body are submitted to the interests and necessities of the soul, then it's not the soul's enemy, but its friend and helper. Our thinking, our acting, we live in light of this coming of the Lord. But that also leads to something else, self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Do you think that maybe Peter is implying something here? That our praying suffers whenever we don't exercise self-control and sober thinking. That our praying goes askew. I could probably fill the hour. Maybe if some of you were willing to seek out testimonies of things you prayed for and now you're ashamed of. (laughs) Lord, if I can't have this, I'm just going to die. And you didn't. And then you found out if you'd have gotten it, it might have killed you. Hmm? When our prayers don't flow out of a life of self-control, a life of sober, clear thinking, our praying suffers. Now, folks, I'm not here to tell you that prayer is easy per se. Prayer can be a lot of work. It can be difficult to be focused. It can be difficult to pray the right things. But you see, even the Lord there is so gracious to us, isn't he? Even when you don't know how to pray, the Spirit of God does. And he basically says, well, now here's what Shivers is saying, but he doesn't know that's not what he needs. Let me interpret Right? Romans, the eighth chapter. So the beginning of this matter of dealing with eternity at the door is I start dealing with my own personal life. And remember, Peter's saying this to believers who are in the midst of persecution. Things are about to get worse. Nero is about to turn up the heat. Now, brethren, you've got to understand, when persecution comes, some of the hardest things to do would be self-control and sober, clear thinking. 
and right prayer. We must keep those things bound together. Now, if eternity's at the door, you not only adjust your own life, your personal holiness, further, you adjust your church life. Beginning at verse 8, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Since love covers a multitude of sins, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. Oh, the one another's of Scripture. Great little book came out in the 70s by Gene Getz, was a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary called One Another. And what he did is he took all, I think there's 11 or 12 one another passages throughout the whole New Testament, and he did a chapter on each of the one another passages, how we're supposed to treat each other. The first thing he points out is our attitude about other believers. Keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Covers sin? Are we supposed to cover sin? I mean, Proverbs 28, 13 says, Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. So that makes it sound like concealment's bad, right? Maybe Peter didn't know that proverb. Then again, he might have known another proverb, Proverbs 10, 12. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. Or maybe another one, Proverbs 17, 9. Whoever covers an offense seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates close close friends my friend the covering here is not about hiding somebody's offense that needs to be exposed it's more about the give and take the ins and outs of you and I doing life together Christian have you ever offended somebody and you didn't mean to you ever said or done something just dumb and sinful and you weren't thinking about it and then you realize later oh man now i want to ask him if every time you screwed up with another christian if every time you gave cause for offense they took offense and demanded that that be fixed right then how do you think that would work Do you realize we'd never get anything done? It'd be virtually impossible, wouldn't it? The covering here is the willingness to let an offense go. Now, friend, if you can't, if it plagues you, if you can't release it, then yes, there's a process. Confrontation, confession, reconciliation. But my friend, not every single offense demands a conversation. Especially if you have any Christian maturity about you. And if you have any love in your heart. One brother said it this way, a person who is under control of godly love acts in this way. When a private personal injury has been done to him, he acts as though nothing occurred. 
in this same way, by simply ignoring the unkind act or the insulting word, he brings the evil thing to an end. It dies and leaves no seed. This consideration gives dignity and worth inestimable to the feeble efforts of the most insignificant of us who make love the controlling principle of our daily lives. In other words, my friend, when we love, there's things we just let go. And we don't hold grudges. Now, it's not letting it go. That hurt. I'm mad. But I'm going to let it go. Well, I'll see you in the store. I don't talk to you. Or see you at church, and I sit on the other side of the room. Or somebody says something nice about you, and I say, well, <laughs> yeah. What you don't know is, no, friend, that's not letting it go. If that's what's going on, you need to have a conversation with them and reconcile. But brothers and sisters, part of the task of loving one another is that we forgive offenses. We let things go. Not everything should be a big deal. Have you ever dealt with somebody who everything was a big deal? It's exhausting. It'll suck the life right out of you. So in our relationships, we ought to, well, Paul says, Colossians 3, above all these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Hebrews 13, 1, let brotherly love continue. Matthew 18, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him as many as seven times? And Jesus says, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times or 70 times seven the point is, my friend, what does he say in the Sermon on the Mount? If you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. Sincere love takes the power and the sting away from sin the way a blanket takes the air away from a fire. It helps snuff it out. And please hear and heed this. If you will not forgive, then quit pretending you've been forgiven. I'm not sure if that was blunt enough. If you will not forgive, quit pretending the Lord has forgiven you. Those two things go together. Hmm. So there's an attitude of love, an attitude of forgiveness. There's also an attitude about hospitality. I love the way he puts it. Show hospitality to one another, and here's his qualifier, without grumbling. <laughs> now the hospitality here could be an overnight guest. In the time Peter's writing, there was no such things as motels, hotels. There were inns, but they were uncommon and almost always seedy places. Showing hospitality to those who were traveling for the sake of the gospel was expected. However, even by the second century, the church recognized there needed to be some wisdom about this. In the ancient Christian document, the Didache, I found this. But concerning apostles and prophets, so do ye according to the ordinance of the gospel. Let every apostle, when he come to you, be received as the Lord, but he shall not abide more than a single day. Or if there be need, a second likewise, 
But if he abides three days, he's a false prophet. Now, now, wait a minute. Paul went places and stayed longer. Remember what the conversation is. This is about places where churches are already established. Whenever Paul landed somewhere, it was typically to stay to start a gospel work. This is talking about people that follow up. In fact, it went further to say, <laughs> when he departs, let the apostle receive nothing save bread until he finds shelter. In other words, give him enough food to get to the next place. <laughs> but if he asks for money, he's a false prophet. Hospitality was expected. It wasn't mindless. But it doesn't have to be overnight guests. It can also be guests for a meal, a snack, a cup of coffee, a visit. Christians, hear what this is saying. Don't be stingy with your time or your resources. Some of you have built your little castle. He's a preacher, just an average home. My friend, compared to 90% of the world, you got a castle. All right? And it ain't yours. I mean, it's yours for stewardship, but it's not. It's to be used. You understand there's folks that might not come to this church building that come to your dining room table. There's people that don't know Jesus that might never come into the preaching of the word in this context would come into your home to hear you talk about the faith you hold. Do you know that there are believers who could be helped and community could be built, relationships built for the sake of the gospel for non-Christians and relationships built for the good of the church? Paul says in Romans 12, 13, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bridget, who ran a medieval monastery, wrote a poem as a prayer for table. I should like a great lake of finest ale for the king of kings. I should like a table of choicest food for the family of heaven. Let the ale be made from the fruits of faith and the food by forgiving love. I should welcome the poor to my feast, for they are God's children. I should welcome the sick to my feast, for they are God's joy. Let the poor sit with Jesus at the highest place, and the sick dance with angels. God bless the poor, God bless the sick, and bless our human race. God bless our food, God bless our drink. All homes, O oh God, embrace. Hmm. Rosaria Butterfield recently wrote a book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key. Rosaria Butterfield was a professor of literature and in charge of women's studies at a very liberal East Coast private college. She was a lesbian. And because a Christian pastor wrote her a kind letter disagreeing with an editorial she had written, it got her attention. And this woman who had never been around any real true evangelical Christians in her life suddenly found herself a guest in this pastor and his wife's home. Now, they were very accommodating. She was vegan, so the meal was vegan. 
And they let her ask questions, and they answered questions and asked some of their own. Let me give you the outcome, folks. I'll speed forward here. Rosiah Butterfield came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, walked away from her previous life, began to follow Christ seriously, eventually married a pastor, pastor's wife, children, homeschool mom, has written several books on ministry among the uh, LGBTQ community. But one of the prime issues for her was the kindness with which she was received into somebody's home. Hospitality. Further, it comes with this attitude about service. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. <laughs> that picture, good stewards of God's varied grace. The word there for varied is the same word that's used for the kind of trials in chapter 1 where he says we go through varied multiple trials. Some places it's translated in other literature multicolored. We go through multicolored trials and here he uses to describe the grace of God. We get multicolored grace. Sometimes we're too selfish to give comfort. Some years ago, a bus station employee having a hard time getting people to shut the doors. So they put a sign on the door that said, for everyone's comfort, for others' comfort, please shut the doors. Nobody shut the doors. They changed the sign. For your personal comfort, please close the doors. The doors got closed. Didn't care about others, but you make it about me, I'm on board. In sheep country in New Mexico, shepherds were having trouble losing lambs in the late winter and early spring. The ewes would take the lambs out to graze, and late in the day it started to snow. The temperature dropped, the ewes continued to graze, the lambs would lie down and freeze to death. They didn't know what to do, so the shepherds got together to discuss the problem, and they decided the ewes being covered with wool didn't feel the temperature change. So they came up with a unique solution. They took the shears and they sheared just the top of the heads of the ewes, the mother sheep, so that they'd feel the temperature drop. And when the temperature dropped, they got the lambs and they went to the barn. What's that to do with me? You calling me sheep? No, the Bible calls you sheep. I'm just echoing text of Scripture. And I've reminded you this often. That's not complimentary. Sheep aren't smart. They get in bad places in bad ways. And apparently even good mother sheep don't necessarily notice when little ones are dying. What am I saying? Brothers and sisters, have you bothered to feel the pain of anybody else? Have you bothered to look around and take notice? Now, I know taking notice is a, is a little aggravating and somewhat risky because if you take notice, you might actually have to do something and you and I want to do th something, but we want to do it on our terms and our timing, right? But the fear is, well, once I start down that path, will it ever go away? Well, it may not, but can I let you in on another little thing? Aren't you glad the Lord Jesus didn't look at you and say, well, I hope you're not too much trouble. I got a feeling you're a problem. 
You're going to take a lot of watching. <laughs> amen and amen. We adjust our personal lives. We adjust our relationships. And let me do this finally, and we'll do this quickly. The 11th verse. You adjust your purpose in life. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. What is he saying, oracles? He means the words of God. So here's your purpose. You speak God's words. You mean I got to learn the Bible? Got to be able to quote it? Well, it wouldn't hurt. But can I tell you that the Bible inwardly taken, the Word of God inwardly, begins to show up outwardly? You don't necessarily have to quote the exact text to rightly represent what God says. Otherwise, what I'm doing is illegitimate. Right? Careful here. There has to be the idea of being so influenced by that Word that you convey the Word. And we know what that's like. I, I know what it's like in preaching. There are times in preaching when it's, it's, it's a sense like the Spirit of God has filled the sails. And you're going along and you know that everybody else is feeling it too because the room gets very quiet. Coughing goes away. Nobody's shifting in their seats anymore. There's this holy moment because the Word is here. Which means God is here. And we take note. So our priorities become speaking God's words, serving in God's strength, serving because the Lord is near. Serve. This is the calling. Serve one another. And finally, seek God's glory that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This echoes so much Paul's statement, 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. The first question and answer in many evangelical catechisms, what is the chief end of man? The answer, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Right? Or John Piper's version, the chief end of man is to glorify God by Enjoying Him forever. Folks, that ought to be more than word to us. When we live sole deo gloria, for the glory of God alone, we do that in light of the reality that eternity's at the door. Listen to this and we close. David Strain, an author I read somewhere, said the first sentence cannot be written until the last sentence is written. So if you're writing a novel, you need to know how it ends before you start so that everything can unfold in light of the conclusion. J.K. Rowling, the famous author of the Harry Potter novels, had the idea for the books on a train one night in 1990 began writing the first book, Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, that very night. But she also began writing the last chapter of the seventh book. The last book at the very same time. 
from Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. In other words, the whole thing was mapped out. The whole seven-book series, the conclusion, was constantly in mind. She even told one interviewer, these books have been plotted for such a long time and for six books now that they're all leading in a certain direction. Good storytelling develops the plot always with the final chapter in view. Christian, you understand, you got the final chapter. Behold, he comes. And my friend, whether that coming for you and I is first our death, it is no less him coming. He calls us home. Our lives are in his hands. Right? We don't get to pick that time. He does. But we also know that there is a termination point. As you and I have an expiration date, this created universe has an expiration date too. When all things come to an end and the Lord returns, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Are you living in light of eternity? Our Father, you know how dense we can be. You know how foolish we can be. You know our weakness, our frailties, the temptations that distract us, the foolish worries that plague us, Father, help us live in light of the coming of the Lord. May our attitudes inwardly, our self-control, our sober thinking, our prayers, our relationships to others, the love that we show, and forgiveness for others' sins, for hospitality and kindness. Lord, for a purpose, knowing that all things are for your glory. May these things drive us knowing the end is in sight and Christ shall soon return. Oh, Lord, help us in that. I pray, Father, those that don't know you today, that this is the day they've come to faith in Christ. Or if they're not sure what that means, have them, Lord, I pray, turn to somebody near them and ask, how can I become a Christian? To come find me, another leader in this church, that we could show them the way of salvation. Lord, as we sing now in response to this, your word, may it be in worship and thanksgiving and with dedication that we will live in light of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.